just as the choir is leaving, someone told me this past week about Sunday bulletin bloopers, where the bulletin read, come this Sunday, sermon on the doctrine of hell. Come early and hear the choir sing. Um, <laughs> well, we, I'm going to change that. Um, we are preaching on the doctrine of hell this Sunday, but come early to hear the choir sing like they will in heaven one day. So thank you very much uh, to the choir for that wonderful uh, blessing of us as God's people as we've been able to worship with you um, in our worship of God today and it certainly does make us want to long for those 10,000 years and forevermore in heaven uh, when we will be uh, singing our praises and worship of God forever and ever. Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 20 Uh, Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to just be reading uh, the last five verses uh, of this chapter from verse 11 to 15. In some of your Bibles, you might see the, the subtitle or the heading, Judgment Before the Great White Throne. Let's read together Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, for his presence, sorry, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Just so far in God's word this morning. Thank you, Nick, for praying um, for the preaching of the word this morning. Um, It has been a difficult week in terms of preparing for this passage. We we come today to the final scene of judgment in the book of Revelation. It's a a scene which uh, is often called the great white throne judgment. And um, yeah, perhaps because today is the sixth time in Revelation that we are returning to the subject of of God's judgment at the end of history, you are sitting here this morning and thinking to yourself, no, Clinton, not again. Maybe that is because you, you think that you are safe from this judgment, and so you have nothing to concern yourself about this topic today. Or perhaps... There are some here today who are so hardened in your unbelief that you really don't think that what we've just read is real uh, or applies to you. And so I'm sure that there are some of you today who can think of many other things that you would rather be doing than spending the next 40 minutes listening to a sermon on the realities of the judgment day and an eternity in hell. And I appreciate some of you letting me know of your distaste for this subject during the course of the week um, because it has helped me to, to take my preaching on this topic all the more seriously. 
But thankfully, my task this morning is not to avoid the difficult portions of God's word, uh, but to seek to faithfully expound the text that is before us uh, and to allow God to work in all of our hearts this morning uh, as he has purposed for his word today. And so since this month uh, of October is our missions month, uh, and since this topic of hell and judgment perhaps feel very far removed from most of us, I'd like to start our time this morning with the conversion account uh, of that great Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson. One evening in 1808, a young man named Adoniram Judson was lodging in an inn while in the room next door, a man was struggling in the throes of death. Judson was a brilliant student at Providence College, which later became Brown University, where he had become enthralled with the Enlightenment ideas coming over from Europe. On the urging of a witty upper-class mate named Jacob Eames, he adopted what is known as deism, which says that God is absent from all that he has created. On his 20th birthday, Judson told his distraught parents that he had abandoned the Christian faith and he was moving to New York City to pursue a lifestyle of pleasure. It was not long after this that Judson listened to the terrible distress in the room next door and wondered what the dying man was thinking. Moans passed through the walls and he could hear the man's restless struggling. What would his free-thinking friend, Eames, say to dismiss this man's anxiety and to remove his concerns about eternity? Had this man, like Judson, perhaps rejected the gospel for the sophisticated worldly creeds? Did his anguish suggest a fear of judgment beyond death? Judson wondered about his own fate in death, trying to remember all the clever answers of the deist Eames to relieve his fears. Well, by dawn, the struggle had subsided, and shortly afterwards, Judson gathered his things to leave the inn. On the way out, he passed the innkeeper, and he asked the, man, he asked the innkeeper about the man next door. He is gone, poor fellow, was the reply. The doctor said he probably wouldn't survive the night. Do you know who he was? Judson asked. Oh yes, said the innkeeper. A young man from the college in Providence came the reply. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Judson was stunned and for hours a single thought occupied his mind. Dead, lost. In that inn, hell had opened up and struck a blow close to Judson's heart. And although he was not immediately converted, this brush with death and judgment led him on a path to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He then became one of the greatest Baptist missionaries, suffering great pains to free others from the judgment of sin. Well, what about you this morning? Have you ever had a brush with death? Or perhaps grappled with the reality of this day of God's judgment which is coming? So much so that you were led on a path to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If so, then I trust that you will be glad to sit under the preaching of, of such a passage today as you are reminded of what you've been saved from 
who you've been saved by and what you've been saved to. But if you've never found the path of forgiveness to Jesus Christ, then I pray that today's consideration of this portion of God's word will bring you to the same point that God brought Adoniram Judson on that night to consider your own fate in death and that you will subject all your human reasonings and all your human objections to the truth of the reality of what God's word is saying to you today and about this day of judgment which is coming for us all. Just this past week at Chantel's mom's funeral, we were reminded from Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1. Solomon says the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a funeral than to a feast. For death is the destiny of every person and the living should take this to heart. So no matter what you think uh, would be a better topic for me to be preaching on today, perhaps something uplifting and motivating or a message offering you all kinds of breakthroughs in life and love, Solomon's wisdom says the, blessed, the best place that we can be today is to consider the day of our own death which is coming to us all. And so as the old saying goes, uh, the work of faithful preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I've been praying that God's word expounded today would, would accomplish both uh, as God knows our hearts today. So as we come to this final scene of judgment then in John's revelation, I want us to see in the first place today the judge of the final judgment. Last week we considered the period commonly known as the millennium, the thousand years of Christ's reign, which I proposed uh, is best understood in the light of all that we've seen in Revelation so far, to be a symbolic reference to the entire period of the church age between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, and so if you missed last week's sermon, uh, please do listen to it online or email me and I'd be glad to, to send you the notes. But we saw last time that during the church age, during the age that we are living in now, all those who died as faithful servants of Jesus Christ, all those who did not worship the beast or its image or receive its mark, all of those who died in Christ, they experienced what John called the first resurrection. The resurrection of the soul in death to spend this thousand year period reigning with Christ in heaven. But back in verse 5, if you glance back there, you'll see that John says that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And now verse 11 picks up on the account where John tells us what happens after the millennium has ended, after Satan and all those who, who worship him, all those who bear his mark, will be destroyed in that great and final battle of Armageddon when Jesus returns at the end of the age. We read in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Now we've seen this symbol of a throne many times in Revelation. It's a symbol of God's sovereign ruling and, and reigning in holiness and majesty over all that he has created. 
But what is different here is that this scene in heaven now brings both together the the previous references to the, the throne of God's majesty and glory together with all the scenes of the end of the world and the day of God's great judgment. What we have here in Revelation 20 is rooted in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. Let me read that to you. As I looked, Daniel says, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and books were opened. So the judge on this throne in John's vision, according to Daniel, is the ancient of days, a a reference to, to Yahweh, to God the Father. And this would align with what John has already revealed to us in Revelation. We've seen this in chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 16, chapter 19, verse 4, and again in chapter 21, verse 5, that it's God the Father who sits on this throne in glory. But at the same time, the New Testament also gives us multiple references to the fact that this final judgment of all mankind has been assigned by God the Father to Jesus Christ. We see that in 2 Timothy 4 and John chapter 5. And and so we cannot separate this throne of judgment from either God the Father or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's clear from John's vision that in the appearing of God in holy judgment, it causes all of the cosmos to disintegrate before his glory and his holiness. Now we know from Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 and 18 that when Adam sinned, nature itself came under God's curse because of sin. Paul tells us that creation has been groaning under its bondage to corruption ever since. And so when this day of judgment arrives, when God appears unveiled in all his glory and holiness and power and justice, here we are told that even creation itself will not be able to stand in his presence. It will flee away and yet there will be no place for it to go. What we have here is is not only what we've seen before in two of our previous yellow blocks at the end of the second cycle of visions in chapter 6 and again at the end of the fifth cycle of visions in chapter 16, but it's consistent with what the New Testament tells us will happen on the day of Christ's return. Revelation 6 verse 14 says, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Chapter 16, verse 20, every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the appearing of the ancient of days at the end of this age will expose all of his creation to his unmediated holiness. The reason right now that you and I are not consumed, that 
creation doesn't just dissolve in the presence of God is because Jesus Christ stands as our mediator of the holy wrath and justice of God. But on that day, everything tainted and affected by sin from creation itself to every single creature, both human and demonic, will be exposed to his holy wrath and will be consumed by his justice. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Chapter 20, Revelation 20, is the day that Jesus was speaking about when God appears on his great white throne to destroy both body and soul in hell. In the second place, then, I want us to see the universality of this final judgment. This day of final judgment is coming for every single person who has ever lived. Now we see this in verse, both in verse 12 and again in verse 13. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. So John's vision makes two aspects of this universal nature of the judgment quite clear. The first thing is that this judgment affects every person from every status and station in life. That's the reference in verse 12 to, to both great and small. We, we saw this at the end of chapter 19 when the angel called all the birds of the air. Remember that? Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, of captains, of mighty men, of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. This judgment affects all mankind. But there's another aspect to the universality of this final judgment, which is a reference to how people died. You see, in ancient times, there was great dignity. I've mentioned this before in the burial of the body with the great expectation of the resurrection. And so there was always great uncertainty around those who died at sea. For the sea was understood to be a place of evil and chaos. It was a place of, of opposition to God. And hence, a person lost at sea was lost forever. But here John tells us on this great final judgment, all mankind were summoned to stand before God's throne, even those who were lost at sea. John saw all the dead who had ever lived standing before the throne. Again, listen to Jesus about this day in John 5, verse 27. The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, says Jesus, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Douglas Kelly, a commentator, writes, there is now nothing to hide any individual in an assembled universe from the Almighty, whose very existence some of these people spent their whole lives trying to deny. All pretense is gone on that day. Each one of us will then be face to face with ultimate and final reality. No escape, no hiding place. 
the refuge of philosophy and false religion has vanished with the clouds. All is held captive by the face of God. It will be the largest human gathering in all of history. Not one descendant of Adam and Eve will be missing. This will be God's final word on the personal, immortal destiny of every soul who has ever lived. End quote. So that is the universality of the final judgment. But now in the third place, I want us to see the basis of the final judgment. Verse 12 tells us that all of humanity is now assembled before the throne of God's judgment. And what? Books were opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Again, verse 13 says that the dead were judged, each one of them. There's an individual judgment of each person according to what they had done. So it's very clear from John's vision that the basis for our judgment on that day will be our works. And before your, your knowledge of the gospel makes you ignore this statement, let me remind you what scripture repeatedly affirms. Psalm 62 verse 12, for you, O Lord, will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24 verse 12, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? Will he not repay man according to his work? Jeremiah 17 10, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Matthew 16 verse 27, Jesus says, the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And I could go on, Romans chapter two, verse five, Romans 14, 12, Revelation 2, 23, Revelation 22, 12. They all say the same thing as Hebrews four, verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So there is no doubt in the unified teaching of scripture that the basis for the final judgment on that day will be the records that fill the books which will be opened. One commentator calls this God's divine memory of every thought, every word, every deed done by each of us in this life, whether good or bad. Sins of commission, things that we actively did against God. Thing, sins of omission, things that we should have done but didn't do. And even the motives of our hearts, all will be exposed. Now if your heart is, is reeling against this truth this morning, it's probably because you've forgotten point one. You've forgotten who is the judge on this throne. You've forgotten that he is holy. You've forgotten that he dwells in unapproachable light. That in him there is no shadow of darkness. You've forgotten that he is just and pure. He cannot even look on sin. That for him to be God, he cannot even let one sin go unpunished. Not one. Let alone the thousands of sinful thoughts and words and deeds that each of us has committed over our lifetime. 
This truth is certainly part of God's word today, which makes the comfortable feel afflicted. Now my purpose is not to make the genuine believer here this morning doubt your salvation. But there are two groups of people here today, comfortable people who who need to feel some affliction of the soul. There are those who are comfortable right now as I'm reading this, as I'm preaching, because you are still dead in your sin. Because your conscience against God and his law and his requirements is so hardened that you are blinded by the reality of your eternal destiny. You are those whom Romans 1 describes as being handed over by God so that you actually find delight and pleasure in the very sins which will condemn you to an eternity in hell. God's word is intended to afflict you today. Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin so that like Jacob Eames, you would writhe in the agony of your soul as you contemplate what is coming to you on that day of God's final judgment when he opens your book. But there are others of you today who are comfortable because you know enough about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the the way of salvation to have lulled you into a place of spiritual complacency and backsliding. You were born in the church, you were baptized as a baby, you were confirmed as a teenager, you invited Jesus into your heart at a youth camp, then you were baptized again as a believer. But over the last five or 10 or 20 or 30 years, you've become comfortable in abusing the grace of God as a license to sin. You are the person Paul describes in Romans chapter six who who thinks that you can continue in sin so that grace may abound. But you've forgotten to read in those very verses that Paul says if you think like that, you reveal that you are still dead in your sin. God's word is intended to inflict you today with the reality that not only will you be judged on that day for the sins you continue to commit under the banner of grace, but you will even face a worse judgment. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment then do you think will be deserved by the one who has literally trampled the Son of God underfoot? profaned the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. We know him who says, vengeance is mine. It's it's the ancient of days who sits on this throne. I will repay, says the Lord. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the Bible is clear. You and I will stand or fall on that day on the basis of, of the record of our works. And even as Jesus said so clearly, I tell you on that day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be judged, 
and by your words you will be condemned. Well, what then in, in the fourth place is the nature of this final judgment? Now, the whole of chapter 19 and 20 reveal that the final destination for every being, from Satan himself to his beasts to all kinds of rulers on the earth to the very least of every unbeliever on the earth, every single one will end up in the eternal lake of fire. In chapter 19, verse 20, we saw the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. In chapter 20, verse 10, we saw Satan himself thrown into the lake of fire. Here in verse 14, we see even death and Hades, the place of the dead, thrown into the lake of fire. And then in verse 15, we see that every single person whose books were opened and their record was found wanting was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, John says, is the second death. Now the big difference between the first death and the second death is that the first death ends this very short life here on earth and ushers us into a temporary state of waiting. But this second death enters those described in chapter 20 into the eternal state. This eternal state is described variously in scripture as hell, as the lake of fire, as the place of torment, as the place of unquenchable and eternal fire, the place of utter darkness, a place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth, and a place of separation from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Let me remind you of what John already told us in chapter 14, verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. In a world today where there is no more unpopular topic to talk about or think about or to preach on than the doctrine of hell, we would do well, as Solomon says, to ponder the day of our death. We need to close our time this morning and we cannot do so until we've seen one final truth from this vision of John, namely the escape from the final judgment. If God's word is to accomplish his purposes today, then up to this point, God's word has sought to afflict the comfortable. As we all consider the reality of this day of final judgment, this day of our works, every thought, every deed, every word being recalled and measured by the ancient of days as he sits on his perfectly just and pure throne of judgment. But we close today with the other purpose of God's word, which is to bring comfort to the afflicted. You see in verse 12, as the books of the records of our lives were opened before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, John says, I saw another book. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
Now we've encountered this book of life already in chapter 13 verse 8 and chapter 17 verse 8 where John told us that the beast had authority and power over every human being on earth except one group, except those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And twice John told us that those whose names are written in this book, they've had them written there from before the foundation of the earth. It is this incredible truth of our names being written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the earth that caused Paul to, to burst forth in praise in Ephesians chapter one, where Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he then predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in his beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. My dear brothers and sisters here today, if your heart is afflicted over the reality of your sin, if your whole being is troubled about the divine record of all your shame and all your guilt being exposed on that day, then there is great comfort for you to be had if your name is found in the other book, in the Lamb's book of life. David, prophetically understood this wonderful comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 130, David said, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, O Lord, should keep a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, verse 13, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. And listen to this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this God set aside by nailing it to the cross. You see, on that day, you either stand in your own right before the divine memory of all your sins and will be cast into the fires of hell forever, or you stand under the second book. You stand under the blood-bought forgiveness of Jesus Christ as your name is read out in the Lamb's book of life. So as we leave here today, how does this vision of the judgment day affect your life and mine as Christians? Well, this passage reveals that even for the believer, we will be judged by our works. Now hear me, not in any saving way, not ever that our works is what saves us. The Bible is abundantly clear that no person will ever be justified through obedience to the law. But what this passage teaches is that the public evidence on that day that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the evidence that we belong to Jesus Christ on that day 
will be our works in this life. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 16. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? Of course not. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, what does Jesus say? It is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You doers of disobedience. James 2 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, well, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Paul writes and says, Jesus, in Jesus Christ there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. That counts for nothing, only faith working through love. And again, lastly, listen to Jesus in John 15, verse eight. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Our fruit will never save us but our fruit proves that we belong to Jesus. So may God help us as we ponder the day of our death, as we ponder the grace of God toward us in the lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins, and that you and I would leave here today eager to work out our salvation, not to work for our salvation, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before this holy judge, for it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you at the end of a very difficult portion of Scripture. A portion which we are grateful is in your word for it causes us to stop as Solomon recommends and to ponder the day of our death. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would give to each one of us today a heart of wisdom, a heart that comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his full and free forgiveness. Lord, I want to pray for those today who remain comfortable either comfortable because they are dead in their trespasses and sins or comfortable in their spiritual state of complacency and backsliding. Lord, with all the grace of God that has been shown to me, I pray that you would afflict them in their souls. That like Adoniram Judson, they would come to find the path of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. May they be miserable in their sin until they find Jesus 
and know his full and free forgiveness. And Lord, for those who genuinely do feel afflicted today, afflicted under the weight of our sinfulness and brokenness, afflicted under the weight of realizing how far we all fall daily of the standards that you have set for us, how far we fall daily in terms of just showing our love to you. Won't you comfort us? Won't you comfort us that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that none shall ever blot our name out of that book. And may, Lord, as we grasp the depth of your love for us, may you make us a people who are mobilized to bear much fruit as you work in us and through us. For your glory, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name.